Uh, if you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to the book of James, chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 26. Uh, you can also follow along with us on the screen. James, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. This is the reading of God's word. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Well, citizens, thank you so much for the opportunity to share God's word with you today. I have friends at this church and I follow you guys on social media and I just love all the ways that you have really been active in being a church for the city, for being salt and light in uh, downtown Los Angeles. Pastor Jason, thank you so much for the invitation to come and preach. Uh, thank you for your friendship and uh, thank you especially for leading such a uh, rich gospel-centered ministry. Uh, your podcast during this pandemic was really life-giving for me. I was breathing, uh, calming my thoughts and my hearts, and just remembering that during this storm, uh, God is always working. God is always with his people and worthy of trust. And so Jason, uh, I really thank you for that and hope you'll start up uh, season two of that podcast. Um, I also wanna thank you, Jason, for the opportunity uh, to preach on James chapter two. It's one of the more controversial passages in the Bible. Uh, especially for Protestant Christians who have been raised up and discipled by the Apostle Paul, who have been formed by the five solas of the Reformation. And if you don't know what those are, they are simply the, the, the declaration that Christians live under the authority of Scripture alone, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that we live and do all things for God's glory alone. And so we're so formed by those valuable truths. They are beautiful gospel truths. And so when we read that um, James writes in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Our theological minds want to just implode. They want to implode. And it looks like James is blatantly um, disregarding and contradicting the gospel of grace. It sounds like James is preaching a salvation by works rather than a salvation by grace through faith. For a period of time, Martin Luther, the German reformer, he despised the letter of James. He called it once an epistle of straw. I know that doesn't sound too harsh, but 
That's a theolo uh, theological diss, I guess. And uh, he even questioned whether James belonged in the Bible. He wanted to tear it out of his Bible and throw it into the fire. Uh, but thank God he didn't. And so citizens, I want to encourage you today that the Bible is not self-contradictory. That James and Paul, as they're writing to the New Testament churches, they are not in disagreement with one another. And I want us to dig deep into this passage and see all of the good that God has in store for us today. The first thing that I want to do is, is look at the problem, the problem of faith without works. The problem of faith without works. Second, I want us to look at the proper relationship between faith and works. And then finally, I want us to examine the, the beauty of a life lived where faith and works are, are connected. Uh, the, the beauty of a life where faith is working itself out in love for God's glory. Now, in the beginning of our passage, James is describing um, the problem of religious hypocrisy. The problem of religious hypocrisy. It's something that we've all seen and experienced, whether it's church elders fighting in a Koreatown parking lot, whether it's hearing about the moral failure of a pastor or a leader that we once loved and respected. We all know how destructive it is when people who claim to have faith and believe in Jesus Christ uh, are, are seeming to live in an absolutely contrary way. And what James is doing is he's making an important distinction between a professed faith and a real faith. Okay? A, a useless faith and a truly saving faith. And so this is why in the beginning of our passage, he asks a rhetorical question. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And if you know rhetorical questions, the answers are always obvious and simple. And the answer to this one is no. A faith without works is dead. A faith without works will not save us. You know, Jesus actually makes an even stronger statement than James does in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. He writes, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That is a terrifying, terrifying passage, but it's a truth that Jesus gives us. A couple months ago, the television announcer for the Cincinnati Reds made an anti-gay slur on the air. He didn't know that the microphone was still on, and he made a terrible, painful comment. And in his apology, he said the following words. From the bottom of my heart, I am so very, very sorry. I pride myself and think of myself as a man of faith. And when I heard that, personally as a Christian, as a pastor, uh, my heart just dropped. Brothers and sisters, when we are guilty of faith, of, of hate and bigotry, referring to ourselves as a people of faith, it does not save us. It doesn't justify us. It doesn't protect us. If anything, it exposes us. It makes our faith, our Christian faith, look useless and dead to a watching world. Now, I don't say this to attack that particular individual. It's just a sobering example of how we often profess faith and fail to do good. And if we're honest with ourselves, we all have areas where our actions betray our beliefs. We know that the Bible calls us to generosity. We believe that every good and perfect gift comes from our Father who is in heaven, and yet 
We struggle with greed and materialism. And yet so many of us, we spend all of our money, all of our resources, all of our energy on ourselves rather than others. We believe that God calls us to be merciful. Pastor Jason has already preached on what true and pure religion is. It's to care for widows and orphans in their distress. We know how powerful and beautiful it is to to care for the poor in our community. And yet, over and over again, when we pass homeless brothers and sisters on the street corners or in our gas stations or, or, or in our cities, our hearts are unmoved. We have no compassion for them. We just need to get to where we're going and keep moving in our lives. Or maybe we value mercy and we value care and we just want everyone else to do it. The Renew LA team, you guys do your thing. I am cheering you on. I'm loving your ministry, but just don't ask me. Don't ask me to give, to participate, to sacrifice. Those are examples of, of what we believe and what we value, being divorced from what we're actually doing and how we're actually living. And so brothers and sisters, even though it may be painful, I want to encourage you to examine your own lives and ask yourselves, where are my actions not lining up with my beliefs? Where are my works separated and distant from my faith in Jesus Christ and the scriptures? And that's a difficult thing, but I believe, I believe that that's, that's a starting point God wants for all of us. To see the, the, the blind spots or the areas of disobedience and brokenness in our lives. And just invite God in and say, God, would you show me my areas of disconnect? And God, would you heal me and would you lead me and help me to live a more complete, holistic Christian life? So what does this look like? What is the proper relationship between faith and works? Because I don't want this sermon to come off in the end as just a a try-harder sermon. Do more or give more. We've heard those sermons. Perhaps at times we've been motivated and moved. We've tried it and we've often failed. And and, and that's not the heart of this sermon today. And so I really want to help us understand, so what is the proper relationship and what are the dynamics between faith and works in a gospel framework? Now, it's important to know that James isn't saying that we are saved because of our works. James is no legalist. Doing good doesn't get us into God's kingdom. We do good because we belong to God's kingdom, or as your church name beautifully reminds us, because we are citizens of God's kingdom. And so we have to get that order correct. Faith comes first. Faith is foundational in our lives. Martin Luther, once again, he, he famously said, we are justified by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. Okay? What justifies us, what makes us right with God, what allows us to be a people who are forgiven of our sins, we are justified by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. And in the next verses, James gives us a hypothetical situation where a professing Christian encounters someone who is poorly clothed and hungry. And he asks, what good is it if all we do is say, go in peace, be warmed and filled? What good is that? If all we say to somebody is shalom, okay? And, and, and best wishes, good luck. That would be the equivalent in our culture. When you just tell someone, hey, take care of yourself. Right? I, I hope you do well. 
But James's point is that when we see someone in need, real physical need, whether it's hunger, pain, or poverty, warm sentiments are not enough. Warm sentiments are not enough, and that is not love, and that is not Christianity. Simply telling someone, I will pray for you, God bless you, Jesus loves you, is not a reflection of biblical love. I have a son, he's uh, two years old, his name is Seth. Um, Man, he's awesome, he's no longer crawling or walking, he's now running and climbing. And in the midst of his play and his activity, he sometimes gets hurt, bumps, bruises, and scrapes. And most of the time, all I have to do in those moments is is blow on the boo-boo and give it a kiss. Like literally the other night, he he hurt his hand and he just came up to me and he wanted me to to do daddy magic on him. And so I blew on it, gave him some baby talk, gave him a kiss, wiped the tears from his eyes, and he was back to playing. But we all know that, that if someone is really hurt, really hurt and really in need, they need more than just words and sentiments. They may need first aid. They may need a doctor. They may need resources. They will need more than words. They need deeds. They need more than sentiment. They need action. And in those situations, that is what love looks like. Okay, there are times when we can, we can speak true and beautiful love into one another's lives. And there are other times when we need to do love unto others. True love is expressed in word and in deed. This is what Jesus teaches in the parable of the Good Samaritan. He shows us who to love, and he shows us how to love. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, he once said this, if you want to give a hungry man a tract, and a tract is simply a small gospel pamphlet that people use to evangelize. If you want to give a hungry man a tract, wrap it in a sandwich. Wrap it in a sandwich. This is how Jesus has loved us, both in word and deed, not just with sentiment, not just with emotion, but he loved us to the point of death. Jesus fed the hungry, he healed the sick, and he died for sinners. Let me say one more thing about the relationship between faith and works. Our works reveal our faith. Our works show our faith. Our actions show us what's really in our hearts, what we truly trust in and believe in. And this is where James and Paul use the term justification differently. James has written that that we are justified by our works and not faith alone. Paul, in Romans 3.28, he writes that we are justified by faith and not according to the works of the law. And so at, at surface level reading, it looks like they are literally in absolute disagreement with one another. But I want to tell you that they are using this term justification very differently. When Paul is writing about justification by faith, he's talking about the basis, the foundation of our forgiveness. He's answering the question, how are sinners made right with God? How are we going to be accepted by God who is holy and righteous? And his answer is by faith in Jesus Christ alone, by trusting in the finished and perfect work of Jesus alone. That's how we're going to be accepted. But when James writes that we are justified by works and not by faith alone, he's not talking about the basis of our acceptance. He's not talking about the basis of our salvation. 
He's talking about the evidence of it. He's answering the question, how can we know that someone is indeed saved? How can we know if our faith is truly real and that we have been changed by the grace of God? And the answer is by our works, by our works. Our works will reveal our faith. Our works will give evidence to what's really in our hearts. They don't establish our faith. They're not the foundation of our faith. They're the evidence of it. Let me give you an example of this. Even in our secular society here in the U.S., we understand that um, we need both uh, uh, a declaration and actions to evidence where we really stand. If you've ever talked to a married couple where one of the... uh, one of the spouses is not an American citizen. You know that there's a naturalization process. Our country wants to make sure that people aren't getting into these sham marriages for money or for situation's sake. They want to make sure that the institution of marriage is legitimate and real. And so there's a process for a non-citizen to receive their green card. And it's not enough just to have a ceremony, exchange rings, sign your papers, maybe even change your last name. By the way, my wife didn't do that. Um, Yeah, our government wants to make sure that people aren't abusing the system. So an immigration officer will drop by the house on numerous occasions, and they want to make sure they're actually living together. And then there will be a series of interviews, and this officer will ask the couple key questions to see whether they're actually married. And I looked it up online, and here are some sample questions that immigration officers ask in the process of uh, marriage naturalization. Who makes breakfast? Who makes breakfast, and what does your spouse usually eat? Where do you keep the spare toilet paper? Where do you do your grocery shopping, and who does the cooking? Is your gas, your kitchen, or is is your stove gas or electric? How many TVs do you have in the house, and, and where are they located? Which side of the bed do you sleep on and what color are your spouse's pajamas? What kind of toothpaste do you use? And so on and so forth. Now, if you're actually in a marriage, you can answer all of these questions, or I hope you can, and they're very simple. But if you're just married on paper and you're not living together, then you cannot answer these simple, basic questions. And And our government will say, your marriage is false. Your marriage is a sham. That doesn't count. Your paperwork is fine. You went through the right processes. You made your vows and exchanged your rings, but that's not enough. An outward profession is not enough. A a real marriage requires more. It requires more. And according to the scriptures, according to James, according to Jesus, and and even Paul, if you read through uh, the letter of Romans, real Christian faith is the same. There is a requirement of both an outward profession and an active obedience that must be lived. Let's move to our final point, the beauty of a faith that works. The beauty of a faith that works. James closes our passage with references to Abraham and Rahab. Both of these people can be uh, read about in Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith, where we have these beautiful Old Testament saints as examples for us. Both of these people had lives of faith accompanied by works. Abraham believed in God, and it was credited credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed to the point where he was willing to sacrifice his only 
beloved son, Isaac, the child of promise. He believed in God so much that he knew that, that, that should Isaac die on Mount Moriah, that God is so great and powerful that he would be able to bring him back from the dead. He believed that, that his God was a God who not only makes promises, but keeps promises. Rahab as well was a woman of great faith, and she feared God, and she was willing to risk her own life and the life of her family by lying to the king of Jericho and saving these Hebrew spies. These Hebrew spies would come to, to look at Jericho and to see uh, how high the walls were and how uh, they might be able to take that city. Rahab and Abraham, they lived lives that were beautiful. Beautiful because there was faith not only professed, but faith that was acted upon. Their faith worked itself out in obedience. And God wants that for you as well. God wants that for us as well. He wants us to experience that kind of wholeness and completeness where we are not just Christians by profession. We are Christians by action. We are Christians by deed. When we connect our faith with our works, it really is a beautiful thing. First of all, it's a beautiful thing to an observing world. Our world needs to see the difference that the gospel makes. Right now, in our nation, we are so politicized. We, we, we see the conservative evangelicals in this country posturing themselves in a way that doesn't reflect the love of Jesus. It looks more like nationalism. It looks more like uh, the pursuit and preservation of power and their own agendas. And if you ask any non-Christian what their thoughts are about the, the evangelical church today, odds are their thoughts are not positive. Their thoughts are critical. There's cynicism, there's pessimism concerning the church of Jesus Christ in our country today. Brothers and sisters, I hope that, that my church here at All Nations, that your church citizens in, in downtown LA, that we would be set apart, not in a self-righteous way, but set apart in a beautiful way, where we would reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ, where we would reflect the beauty of God's kingdom in this world, so that they would see the difference that Jesus makes in our lives, in our families, in our churches, and in our communities. Not only is that beautiful, not only is a, a life connected between faith and works beautiful to the world, it's, it's beautiful to us. Our faith comes alive. Okay, our faith comes alive when our faith is not just something we say and not just something we sing, but it's actually something we live out, something that we do and experience. Our faith comes alive when we put an end to our own forms of hypocrisy and start living lives filled with Christian integrity. Friends, you, you, you know the pain of living in Christian hypocrisy. You know what that does to us. When we are living in deliberate sin, running from God, trying to hide these areas of our lives, we know that our, that our inconsistent and incomplete um, disagreement with the Christian life, that makes us feel so distant from God. We don't want to pray. We don't want to worship. We don't want to serve because we, have, we are haunted by our own failures. We're haunted by our own sins. 
God wants to set you free from that shame. He wants to set you free from, from those barriers. Okay? First freedom comes in the full acceptance of Jesus Christ. But the second expression of freedom comes from, from us turning away from our hypocrisy, putting an end to it by actually choosing to obey Jesus and trust in the promises and in the commands of Jesus Christ. It's a powerful thing for us to experience the wholeness of Christianity. And it's a sad thing that so many of us have read the Bible, have, have, have appreciated and agreed with the Bible, and we haven't taken that third step to try and live the Bible, to live the Bible. And the most beautiful thing about a faith that works is that it connects our lives to the lives of Jesus, to the life of Jesus. This is the kind of love that our God gives. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus has loved us to the utmost with his words, with his actions, and with his very life. And when you and I start to model and experience that, we are united. We are united to the life of Jesus. Then we begin to taste and see what real discipleship looks like. This is the kind of love that God not only has for us, but he wants us to experience and demonstrate as well. This is the kind of faith that God requires of us, that we love him with word and deed, that we love others with word and deed. Brothers and sisters at Citizens, I, I hope that, that we would really experience this in our lives. Uh, during this pandemic, there are so many people in need. There are so many people struggling with different forms of anxiety, isolation, loneliness, and depression. There's so much uncertainty, anger, and outrage in the world today. I hope and pray that we would actively, beautifully, winsomely love our neighbors and bring glory to Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share God's word with you. I'll continue to be praying for you, and let's take a moment and close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these words of grace that you have given us today. Father, I pray that you would do two great things in our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would expose and convict us of our own sins, that we wouldn't take this message and, and use it and weaponize it against other people, whether it's our family members, our church friends, or, or other religious leaders that we might know, but that you would use these words to convict us of our own sin, to bring us to repentance and remind us of just how much we need you, of how lost we are without you. And second, I pray that you would build us up to truly experience uh, what discipleship looks like, to really experience what it means to, to follow Jesus, to know him, and to, to live as he lived, to love as he loved. And so, Lord, give us the courage, give us the power, give us the grace that we need to not just be people who speak about the Bible and speak about the Christian life. Help us to, to enter into the joy and power of actually living that out. I pray that for myself 
And I pray that for all of my brothers here at Citizens. We thank you and we trust that you will answer and hear our prayers according to your perfect grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.